we did the world premiere in San Francisco last year. Bryony Dixon, the curator from BFI, was in the audience, and we were walking out of the cinema together, and she goes, now how did they get that past the censors? And I think that's a really good question. <laughs> Silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert, proprietor of Nitrateville.com, the online discussion site for classic era film. Coming to you live, transcribed from Chicago with Nitrateville Radio the podcast in which we talk to people doing interesting things in the world of classic movies. Authors, historians, film preservationists, silent film accompanists, and more. Well, the first podcast went so well, I decided to do it again, with even more guests. First, I talked to Jared Case and Deb Stoiber at George Eastman House about an upcoming festival of films shown entirely on our namesake, Nitrate. Then I'll talk with Rob Byrne, director of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. We'll be talking about a legendary, long-unseen film from World War I, coming out soon on home video from Flickr Alley, Behind the Door. And we'll probably talk about a few other things he's been involved with, like a certain very long, very wide French film. But first, remember... Podcasts thrive on subscriptions, so if you like conversations with people involved with classic films, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and subscribe to Nitrateville Radio to make sure you don't miss a single episode. It's all digital now. Film is dead. Or so they say. But there are festivals out there still showing films on film savoring the tactile pleasures of vintage prints. And beginning with this episode, I'll occasionally talk to people involved with such festivals as they get closer on the calendar. The first one we'll talk about goes even further than just 35mm or 16mm. It's devoted to nitrate, the original film stock celebrated for its lustrous images and its extreme flammability. It's the third annual Nitrate Picture Show at the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, May 5th through 7th. I spoke with Jared Case and Deb Stoiber, who helped put it on. Well, this is a festival, a weekend-long festival that we have uh, end of April, beginning of May, we have for the last three years. It is dedicated to the exhibition and the celebration of nitrate film as an artifact and as a, a vital way of viewing these films. So we have a schedule all weekend long of uh, nitrate prints that come from around the country. And as we move further and further into this uh, venture from around the world, uh, that we bring into program and show a complete schedule of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we complement that with uh, talks from uh, archival professionals. We have tours of the nitrate vaults. Uh, We have workshops showing you how you can actually make nitrate film. And uh, we're adding tours this year of the Kodak Film Factory and of the technology collection here at the museum. 
So it's a celebration not just of this rare opportunity to see nitrate prints projected on the screen, but it's also a celebration of the archives that have spent all these decades uh, conserving these films and making sure they're in good enough shape that they can actually be projected. If someone goes to this, what kind of things do they tend to see? Uh, well, we started out our first year with a beautiful print of Casablanca from Museum of uh, Modern Art. And that was sort of just the beginning, but it was such a great way to sort of explode onto the scene. And we followed that up with uh, our own print of Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, the British version from 1934. And we've uh, done two programs, now with three programs, including this year, uh, that include short films, documentaries, avant-garde, uh, feature films, musicals. We try to run the gamut, show exactly how nitrate was used in, in all of its uh, facets uh, up until 1951. We always hear that you know movies were more beautiful and more lustrous then. Is that something that comes from nitrate, or is that something that comes from the period when nitrate existed, that people were just making better prints or whatever back then? I think there are some uh, technical differences between uh, nitrate prints and the prints that were made uh, on safety stock, particularly with films made in this era. So there's always going to be some generational loss uh, as you copy from nitrate to safety, uh, but there are certain physical aspects of the prints themselves that I think make a big difference. So the amount of silver in the uh, emulsion for the black and white films uh, – it, it really shimmers on the screen. The 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 the, the whites they they bounce off the screen. There was this scene in um, Casablanca where Ingrid Bergman has tears in her eyes, and they were just sparkling. And the depth, the clarity, the definition of that black and white image is is striking. That's that's where I see the biggest difference is in the black and white. But uh, for the color prints that we have that we show, they're they're original. They're you know the dye imbibed three-strip or two-strip Technicolor, uh, or you, last year we showed our first silent feature, uh, which was Ramona, that was uh, in our last program of the weekend called The Blind Date with Nitrate. Um, and so all of these colors uh, come off the screen in an unadulterated form. This is exactly what people saw when they watched the film 70, 80 years ago. It's like going to a museum and seeing an original artifact as opposed to a reproduction on your computer or in a book. You are in that same space with that print of Casablanca from 75 years ago. This was a print that was shown to audiences directly from the nitrate negatives that you can share with, with the people over the last 75 years. We've gotten prints from Martin Scorsese who has his own film collection. We've got prints in our own collection that were the uh, original prints that David Oselznik owned, and he would watch uh, either for research or f as part of his personal collection. So there's a cachet to these prints beyond just the content. Uh, it's original artifacts. And this, is, as a museum, this is really something that we're very interested in pursuing. Do you feel like the transfers that are being done for Blu-ray these days, do, do you feel like they capture that accurately or do they tend to take it in their own direction a little bit? I think they tend to take it in their own direction a little bit. Uh, 
it's going to be a completely different experience to watch it, obviously, at home on your television, on your flat screen TV, and on a digital format than it would be in a movie theater. With the uh, nitrate, I feel like you, you get more of the grain, you see it, and you feel like it's more of an organic experience. And what also makes it uh, so wonderful at the Nitrate Pictures Show is you're surrounded also by people in the dark enjoying this experience together. And I think that makes a big difference uh, when you go to a festival such as the Nitrate Picture Show. You're seeing uh, more of how the film was intended to be shown when it was first created. It, it's a completely different way of showing this content, right? Because uh, the projection of film is a subtractive process. You're starting with white light and you're filtering out what you don't want people to see. Whereas digital projection and what you're seeing on TV is additive. You're putting together colors in order to create what should be there in terms of the content, the color or the black and white. Um, and when they do the transfers, they do their best to you know come close to what the, the film looks like. But depending on what material they're working with and who's doing uh, the transfer. I've seen some really terrible transfers where they over-sharpen everything and uh, it just doesn't look like film anymore. Uh, the thing with with digital is it's all about the delivery system. It's not as much about the artifact itself as it is about the delivery system and what it's reading from that digital artifact. It's funny to me, nitrate now is taken so seriously as, as a potentially hazardous material um, that, you know, it can only be shipped in certain ways. You obviously store it, I know, in, in ways to prevent it all going up in a big ball of flame. And yet here was something that was shipped to every neighborhood movie theater and a projectionist who was probably smoking at the time was <laughs> showing it. Um, mm -hmm. Are we just too scared of nitrate? I feel like we are. As long as you treat the film with respect, it's going to be fine. And yeah, people did smoke in the booth. The main causes of fires in projection booths wasn't really the film itself. It was exactly what you're describing, the surrounding areas. Uh, the projectionist was smoking, or a lot of cases they had uh, gas-powered uh, machines, and there would be a gas leak. And then you need a cigarette lighting in the audience, and you'd have a problem there. Also, they had carbon arcs, which was an open flame. Now we have xenon bulbs. So I think projection projection booths have become safer as people became more aware of the volatile of nitrate. But I don't think that uh, it's become any more dangerous. If anything, it's become safer as booths have been meeting different um, fire codes and theaters meet different fire codes now. When you hear about the big fires that happened... 100 years ago, it mainly, and 120 years ago, it's mainly because of the fire codes of those buildings. They were showing films in basements. They were showing films that didn't have proper exit pathways. And that's when you hear about the big fires and you hear about people dying. And also newspaper men would play it up to sell newspapers. And so this is where we get, I think, a lot of our fears from is not, uh, is from the sensationalism behind it. Yeah. 
One of the things we we have a, a school here. We have this is the twenty first year of the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation, and one of the first things that I tell the students as we begin to watch them on flatbeds is there's two things you need to remember. Film is a lot more fragile than you think it is. The second thing to remember is film is a lot stronger than you think it is. So there are certain things, and it's the same thing with uh, nitrate. You know, there's specific things that you can do to really harm the film, but it was made to be a medium that can be shown over and over. It gets sent to one theater, then it gets sent to another theater. And the fact that we have these films 120 years later does owe something to the the viability of the form. They, they were making quality products. A lot of the damage that happens is in poor maintenance of the projectors or uh, poor inspection or poor shipping and that's that's part of the challenge to find those prints that uh, have been treated well throughout the years as opposed to the ones that uh, have not so each of you tell me something that you're looking forward to seeing over the course of this weekend something that you're excited to see in nitrate on a big screen well, the one thing we should tell you about this festival is that we don't announce the titles ahead of time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I can tell you generally about things that I'm uh, looking forward to, uh, but the, there are a few reasons that we don't announce the titles ahead of time. Um, the main reason is that w this is a festival of film conservation. We want to celebrate nitrate and the rarity of, of screening it on the on the big screen. We want to talk about the archives and the great work that they've done making sure that these films are available. But it's also, we find that if someone sees that a title is showing, like, like Casablanca, um, you know, People may have seen that hundreds of times. Uh, they may have even seen it on 35 acetate. And they say, oh, I've seen that in the theater. And they take it for granted when the presentation on nitrate, especially that print, that gorgeous print, is so much different than what you would normally see on TV or in a, a newer print. And then we also have titles that... Um, may not be recognizable, that may not catch your eye, and yet they're the... There are these wonderful discoveries, um, such as Brighton Rock that we got from the BFI last year, uh, this British noir that uh, was was really great, and it looked just beautiful. And that presentation can really bring out a lot. And the final reason is that it gives us as much time as possible to find the best prints to bring to the audience. So we had our blind date with nitrate. So we don't announce the schedule until that first day, but we still, that last show, we hold that back. We don't tell anyone until the film hits the screen, what that film is going to be. And that was Ramona. That was our, our silent print uh, that we got from a Russian archive with German intertitles. And it didn't come in until April. We didn't know it was going to be a possibility until about two weeks before the show. So we scrambled to do a new insert for the catalog, and uh, we made sure that we were able to show that as part of the program. It gives us as much time as possible to make the program great. It's about nitrate. It's about the rare opportunity. There are, as, as by my count, four places in the United States that can actually show nitrate film. Uh, the other three are in California. So we cover the eastern 90% of the country. Yeah, it's more of a festival about the film itself rather than about, it's not a star-driven festival. It's more of just like an aesthetic 
experience of being with film. It's sort of a unique experience here where you're going for the films and you're going to have a mixture of maybe films you've heard before and maybe films you haven't, just like you would at at any other festival. But you also know that everything is going to be on the original film stock that it was created on and just being able to appreciate that moment in time once again. The Nitrate Picture Show is May 5th through 7th at the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York. Links for more information will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Almost 40 years ago, a book came out which took a very novel approach to looking at silent film. It was called The War of the West in the Wilderness by Kevin Brownlow. And what it was basically about was that in the silent era, filmmakers were much more daring about making films at the edges of civilization. The wilderness, literally exploring the ends of the earth, the west, when that still existed as America's frontier, and the war, World War I, the breakdown of European civilization. One film in particular stood out to anyone who read the book as summing up the kind of savagery that you could find in those early films a bloodthirsty 1919 war and revenge melodrama called Behind the Door, directed by Irvin Willett. We'll try not to give too much of the plot away, but it's worth noting that Brownlow described the entire film, including the ending, in great detail, because obviously you were never going to see it. The Library of Congress had one print, so a few hundred festival attendees saw it over the years. But home video had barely even been invented at that point, and there was obviously no way that such a title was ever going to be on VHS at your nearest West Coast video. Well, you wait long enough, and though VHS and West Coast video may be gone, Behind the Door came out on DVD and Blu-ray on April 4th. That's a bit of Stephen Horn's score for the film playing behind me. Behind the Door's reconstruction actually premiered in 2016 at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival and went on to play the Pordenone Festival of Silent Film in Italy later that year. I spoke with Rob Byrne, the festival's director, in Amsterdam. He was in Europe for a screening at the BFI in London. I asked him to summarize the plot without spoilers. It actually has a lot of different aspects. In one sense, it's a love story. In another sense, it's a tragedy. Um, another sense, it's a revenge drama. Um, but it really, the, the plot gets into motion. You have uh, Hobart Bosworth, who plays Oscar Krug, who is a retired seaman who runs a ta- taxidermy shop. Uh, he falls in love with a uh, young woman in the, in the town, uh, played by Jane Novak, who is the daughter of banker Mike Morris in the town. Um, war breaks out. The... Because of uh, Bosworth's or Oscar Krug's um, German heritage, the town turns against him. There's no, basically, there's you know, there's no. The only good German is a dead German type of thing. Um, meanwhile, Krug marries uh, the daughter, um, unknown to everybody else. Uh, Krug goes to war. Uh, the banker finds out that the uh, the daughter has married Krug, and he banishes her from the house. 
she has no place to go, so she sneaks aboard Krug's ship, and things sort of go downhill from there. Tell me, how did you first learn about the film? Well, it actually came to my attention about five years ago. Uh, a musician and a good friend of mine, Stephen Horn, knew about the film and was telling me about it. And um, the more I heard, the more I was interested. So I started digging, and then I learned, basically there's a whole subculture wrapped around this film of people that were knew it and were very enthusiastic about it, um, but also in a way frustrated because the only thing that had been available uh, for people to see was a uh, an incomplete copy that was held at Library of Congress. And so the thought of it doing a, a real involved restoration uh, sort of sat on the back burner. The, the idea that we wanted to do it, but we also knew that there was only one other print um, that survived, that being in Gosfilmofond in Russia, um, that was really the key to uh, reassembling the film, at least to the greatest extent possible. How did it get there? Um well, to a certain extent, that's a mystery, and to a certain extent, that's pretty standard. That, of course, um, you know, films traveled quite freely, so they would have been exported and and probably seen in a number of European countries. I would I would have presumed. Um, we don't know, um, but we knew now there was uh, uh, an export negative made because the Russian print is made off of an export negative. And what that means is, if you're, if you're not um, <laughs> too in tune with uh, silent film distribution, um, is that typically a separate negative was made for distribution uh, externally, primarily to Europe. So they didn't ship film prints to Europe. They, shipped, they would ship a negative. And then from that, film prints would be made... Uh, localized titles would be intercut and that sort of thing. And those negative, negatives were typically made um, from either camera shots um, that were either an alternate take from a take that was used in the American negative or from an, another camera. So they'd be shooting with multiple cameras. So it might be the same take, but a different camera angle one than the than this version that would appear in the American version. So we're able to tell that the Russian negative was off of an export, off the export negative, because the shots are the same, but they're not the same. They're from a little different angle, or they're sometimes they're framed a little differently, or sometimes the action is slightly different. Now, were there more substantive differences in the Russian version, uh, where they made it even grimmer, or something like that? Uh, it's not grimmer, but it's completely reconfigured. Um, where I don't know exactly when the film was released in Russia, obviously after 1919, so after the revolution, but, um, the story has changed completely. And this is, you know, something that happens a lot, um, or that can happen a lot, usually with more subtle differences when a film would be exported, uh, characters, names are changed or circumstances are altered, uh, to make it more, uh, you know, maybe perhaps comprehensible, to the uh, to the uh, to the country that you're showing it in, or whatever. Um, in this case, um, the you know for a, for a film that features a submarine, a U-boat as a central part of the film, um, 
the war is not mentioned at all in the Russian version. Instead, the um, the submarine is uh, is owned by smugglers, and uh, it's a, it's really a tale of of uh, capitalism and revenge versus intolerance <laughs> and revenge in a way. Well, and I wondered too. I mean, there is the theme of Hobart Bosworth as a German immigrant in America who's eventually oppressed or sort of mistreated by people when when war breaks out. That seems like it would be a good thing for the Soviets to include, but it doesn't make much sense if they don't acknowledge the war. Yeah, well, in this case, we have um, he's uh, Bosworth is not a taxidermist; he's a toy maker, and he's a ship repairer, and the the. Morse, who is the banker in the film, in the real version, or the, the original version, um, is a shipping uh, magnet who refuses to maintain the ships. So a ship is lost at sea, and then Bosworth is, is blamed for not maintaining the ship and being the reason it sunk, and that's why the town turns on him. Um, but then he is, of course, vindicated in the end. Let's talk about the... Uh... The restoration process. I actually asked uh, James Cozart of the Library of Congress about this when I ran into him at a film festival like 10 years ago. And he explained the fact that the material they wanted was in Moscow and that it wasn't as easy as just calling them up and asking for it. So how did it finally get done? Again, just like James was, uh, I think the the people who have been wanting to do this restoration for, for decades, as you know, um, Bob Burchard, who was a huge advocate of the fan uh, of the film, um, had always wanted to do it. James Cozart, Library of Congress, had always wanted to do something with it. And uh, you know, what they, the best they were able to do was put together basically a reconstruction that filled in the blanks uh, with titles, explaining what was what was not uh, wasn't available. And, and the Holy Grail has always been this Russian print that. Um, had uh, the missing reels and a lot of the missing parts that uh, that weren't available to us. And it was really two years ago, um, well, I'd sort of taken up the cause like five years ago, but two years ago, it was actually in Culpeper Library of Congress, and uh, I was at the Mostly Lost Conference, which happens every year there. And uh, attending the conference that year was Peter Bagrov, who was curator at Gosfilmofond, the uh, Russian archive, and he and Mike Mashan, who is there at Library of Congress, and I got together and says basically, well, let's do this. Um, so it was it, it, at some point it just became as simple as that. Um, it was the right person and the right time, and somebody that just wanted to uh, was enthusiastic about the film and very enthusiastic about Irvin Willett. Um, and uh, Peter went back and. Uh, I was in Italy that fall at the in uh, Portononi at the silent film festival there, and Peter came up to me and handed me a hard drive with a 2K scan of the Russian print, and we were off and running. It sounds so easy. <laughs> but it wasn't so easy, but that that was the that was amazing. You know, sometimes magic just happens, and that was just one of those times where uh, you had you had people that really wanted to get it done, and. Um, it just sort of happened, yeah. So right, the well, doors, the more doors magically opened. Yeah. 
Well, you mentioned Irvin Willett. Let's talk about him for a second. Uh, not a name that figures in film history very much, but I know that people like Bob Burchard, who had seen a number of his films, thought of him very highly for the period, a director through the silent era and into sound. I think his last film was 1937, but obviously someone who didn't have a great deal of success in sound or got fed up with it or something. Um, and I've seen a couple of his films and, and agree with the high estimation of him. What, what do you think about Irvin Willett? I think Irvin Willett is well overdue for a real rediscovery. Um, since working on Behind the Door, I've been seeking out and trying to find uh, his other films. Uh, a number of them are quite good and quite well-directed, well-photographed. Um, and unfortunately, at the moment, not very well available. You usually find them, if at best, on uh, poor DVD transfers um, and that sort of thing. Um, it's not so much, actually, interestingly, um, it's hard to say why his career went south as it did. There's, um, if you want to look it up, there's some great information um, substantiated by uh, um, Kevin Brownlow, who I spent a lot of time talking to about Willett, because uh, Brownlow knew Willett. He, uh, when, when Kevin lived in L.A., he was basically around the corner from Willett. Um, and Willett's wife at the time, back then, was Billy Dove, the actress. And the story went around basically that Willett had sold Billy Dove to Howard Hughes. And um, Even that in- is a, there's a long story involved in that. You can, <laughs> you can look it up. But that's, that's a lot of what is, is, uh, people give us is, is the reason why he, uh, he sort of became persona non grata in the film industry. Even in Hollywood, that was too much? That was a bit too much, yeah. Uh, Now, what about uh, Hobart Bosworth? Now, he's someone I've always liked, uh, just seemed like a strong presence in silent film. Again, someone who, not nearly as big a star in sound, although he worked a lot in sound, whenever they kind of needed that sort of big old guy presence, you know, kind of like Harry Carey Sr. or something like that, they would bring him in. But in the in the silent era, I mean he was a star a couple of different times. Yeah, I mean he was he was he was quite successful and actually one of the things that launched him into success was this film. Um and the you know, follow up films that come after that. It was sort of this almost set the uh the pattern for him afterwards as uh he is an old salt in uh any number of, of films. Uh, but I like your description of him as sort of a Harry Carey senior. I mean, definitely as a persona. And then there's Wallace Beery is actually the one person in the picture who people today may have heard of. Um, and it's interesting that he's, he's such a black dyed villain in this, considering the sort of lovable lug that he would play eventually at MGM. It's funny to me that, that his persona could be, could be so variable, and he had been in Max Sennett films before this. What do you think about Wallace Beery in this? I think he is fantastic. I mean, it, it's sort of a testament, to, as you mentioned, is his versatility. Um, you know, because he was right; he was a Keystone. He was, you know, he had a long, long career. But he is the consummate German villain in this film. Um, there's a fantastic scene in it uh, when his character is introduced, 
uh, and he's in the sub, he's the submarine captain, and he's they're submerged, and he's looking through the periscope at the ships outside, etc. And he turns and looks right at the camera with this amazing sneer. Um, he is he's got the part down without being campy. He is pure evil. Hmm. Let's talk about making music for this. Uh, Stephen Horn does the score on the DVD and Blu-ray release from Flickr Alley. Was he has he been attached to it for everything that you've been involved with? Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, it was Stephen actually that brought the film to my attention um, many years ago now. And it's it's a project that he's always been passionate about, and I think a, a lot of that is because, um, you know, with with certain films, and, and I've seen Stephen heard, I guess is probably more appropriate, um, heard Stephen play for so many films. Um, when he has a certain affinity to it, or he has a, a musical sympathy with a film, he can really draw out some amazing uh, emotion to it. I think that was part of his enthusiasm for it as well, of course, wanting to play for it. Um, so when it came time for us to, to select a musician to record the score, it was really, um, Stephen was the first and only choice. We knew we knew that's where we were going to go. Now, the only bit of it I've heard is the part that's in the trailer that Flickr Alley put out, which is quite gentle. And I wonder, does he, does he get, uh, you know, is he really pounding the keys when it comes to the climax or... How does that work? Well, he is. Um, he definitely goes with the tempo. I think in the trailer, I think the, uh, I think they what they, what they did is they really tried to counterbalance a selection of music from the film against the image, um, so you get this sort of eerie thing. Um, but Stephen um, definitely rises to the the music rises to the intensity of what's happening on the screen. So how have audiences reacted to the film? One of my favorite comments after the uh, film was when we did the world premiere in San Francisco last year, and uh, Bryony Dixon, the curator from BFI, was in the audience, and we were walking out of the cinema together, and she goes, now how did they get that past the censors? And I think that's a really good question. <laughs> um, but somehow they did. Um, it's pretty interesting to me because uh, having seen the 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 film several times with several different audiences now. Um, it gets very quiet in the last reel of the film. Um, people are going along with it, you know, there's the drama and they're, you know, it's a war film and the things are going on and it's it, everything's sort of unwinding the way you might expect, um, you know, a, a drama to go. And then when you get to the last reel, you can hear a pin drop in the, uh, with, with perhaps the, the exception of a couple of gasps, um, you can hear a pin drop in the auditorium. People can't really believe what they're seeing on the screen. They're just not, you know, it's something you, would, you wouldn't really think twice about in a, you know, in a modern film or even a, you know, a television cop drama. But uh, for a 1919 film, um, it's pretty shocking. So how did they get it past the censors? Uh, it must have... I mean, <laughs> you know, your guess is as good as mine, and I think that's probably a good area from research. I would be very interested if people could dig up censor records from, uh, from different towns and cities to know what they cut out. Um, one thing we do know for sure, and I assure, assume it's a censor cut, there's a couple things. One is the Russian print 
has a shot of, uh, in the end, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, um, or it's a lot of a spoiler alert. If you really want to avoid any plot points at all, jump ahead now to 3615. There's a shot of the submarine crew putting Ava Novak's body into the torpedo tube, um, which is not in the American version, which I assume was a cut. Um, there is another very obvious cut in when she is in the submarine and the submarine captain, uh, Lieutenant Brandt, who is played by Wallace Beery, grabs the front of her dress, and then there's a jump cut in the print that we have, and he's and she's covering up her chest. Well, even within that cut, if you can look at the single frames leading up to the cut, and you do get three frames of exposed breast. So presumably, at the uh, in the full version or the unedited version or the uncensored version, um, he rips the front of her dress off, and she's completely exposed. Well, let's switch gears for now and uh, talk about another film that has been of endless fascination, I know, on Nitraville. It's just one of the films that comes up and comes up again and again, and that's Napoleon. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival produced or was involved with the, the Oakland showing. Yes, in fact, we did produce it. Um, so it was four screenings, uh, actually four what I would call performances, um, at the Oakland Paramount Theater, uh, the first of which was exactly five years ago today. Oh. Um, I had a couple of friends who went, actually, and, you know, they were all just blown away by the experience. And it's interesting to me. I mean, I saw it in that original 1980 or whatever it was tour with uh, Carmine Coppola conducting the score I saw it in Kansas City. And I kind of feel that it really, it had a real effect in changing how people saw how you treated silent film. Um, that, you know, you weren't there to kind of laugh at the campy stuff. The uh, the organist wasn't there to switch into playing T for two when two people are on screen, you know, that kind of thing, the, the easy laugh right. stuff. But that you took, you took it really seriously. And I feel like a little bit of the snickering at old films went away after a presentation of such grandeur. Well, I think I think that's in a way true. I think you know, for, for, to a great extent. I mean, we had people that really believed in silent film to the fir in the first place. I mean, we certainly had a lot of people that are going to the first film, but you know, our ticket price in order to even break even for for Napoleon was was quite high, and uh, and it's a you know it's a six hour film, so. I wouldn't say it was only true believers. I mean, we had 12,000 people, so there aren't 12,000 true believers out there. Yeah, I think, I think Napoleon did open a lot of people's eyes. And maybe not so much that they were um, now would take silent films seriously, but I don't think most people had the appreciation of, you know, maybe of the kind of power um, that can come with that perfect marriage of, you know, a master director and, a, you know, master musician, um, you know, having Obligance's masterpiece there and then having the 60-piece orchestra with Carl Davis himself conducting a score and the power and emotion that uh, 
you know, when you got to the last reel of the film, had 3,000 people on their feet cheering during the film was was simply amazing. Napoleon is in the odd circumstance that, you know, Brownlow's restoration of it is now, is what you showed and is now on uh, Blu-ray and DVD from England. But there's another version of it coming from the uh, Cinematheque Francaise. How do you reconstruct the same film twice? Uh, you know, is are there are there different points of view? Do you think about how Napoleon should go together? Well, there's not necessarily different points of view. I mean, first thing to remember is there's different Napoleons. Is that um, to a certain extent, it's it's like there are different births of a nation, right? There were different cuts at different times. So for Napoleon, there was a very long version, and I, I couldn't quote you links right now, um, that was only performed once or twice, and then there was almost like a pre-preview. Then there was what was called the Olympic version, which is the triptych version that was performed in, uh, in Paris, and then it was reduced further for distribution and et cetera, et cetera. Now, what, if you want to go back to the history of the restoration, you have to remember that Kevin Brownlow started as a young man with a couple of 9.5 millimeter reels of film that he found that uh, he got from a distributor, and which began his 50-year quest to reassemble the film. And that has been from all different sources, um, you know, things from the Cinematheques and from collectors, things from other archives. There were there have been versions of Napoleon floating around um, for a long time, um, and it was his quest, you know, to reassemble the film to the greatest extent possible. There, well, what he didn't have, and what has been rediscovered or discovered or come to light or whatever you want to say at the Cinematheque is a couple things is additional film material that that Kevin didn't have access to and also documentation on exactly the um, what the Olympic version looked like so the the cutting continuity for the the Olympic version so for the first time um, the Cinematheque has uh, the ability to look into what exactly that Olympic version looked like and to be able to work towards reconstructing that. Okay. So we'll just have to wait, and then we can put aside 11 or 12 hours on some Sunday to watch them back-to-back and see how they compare. I think so, too. I think a split screen. Um <laughs> Watching them side by side, which get really fun during the triptych when they yeah. have six screens going. <laughs> right. You have to have six TVs set up side by side. I think it's perfect. Um, so the San Francisco uh, Silent Film Festival uh, will be in June. Is that right? June? Right. It's, it's in yep, June. June 1 through 4. Okay. Um, I know you, as we're recording, you haven't released the full schedule, but there is a really interesting title that'll be on there, I saw, which is a Cecil B. DeMille film called Silence, not based on the Japanese novel that Martin Scorsese just filmed, I'm sure. Um, but Silence, uh, I don't know anything about that. What's, what is this film and where did it come from? All right. Well, Silence is, as you mentioned, it's a 1926 film. It was directed by um, uh, Rupert Julian and uh, 
produced by Cecil B. DeMille. It's been a lost film um, and a nitrate version of the French release uh, surfaced in Paris about this time last year. And we have partnered with Cinematheque Francaise on a number of restoration projects in the past. So they called and said, would we like to, uh, hey, guess what we found? And would you like to do a project on this? And we, of course, said yes. Um, so that's what we're doing. Um, it is a, uh, it's a melodrama, and I would say that with a capital M. Um, there's a lot of tears in this one. It's, um, I won't give away the plot too much. It's based on a very successful Broadway play from 1924 of the same title. And um, DeMille bought it, bought it to, uh, to bring to the screen. Anything else that you're going to be showing that you'd like to talk about? Another title we're really excited about is The Three Musketeers, the 1921 Douglas Fairbanks original version, which has not been able to be seen um, in a decent copy for, I would say, generations. Uh, but the Museum of Modern Art is doing a brand new restoration based off of their uh, negative. Uh, we are participating in that restoration. And we're very much looking forward to uh, bringing Doug in his original uh, squash brookling role uh, back to the screen. Thanks to Jared Case and Deb Stoiber, and to Rob Byrne for being my guests this time. Thanks also to Sarah Baston at Flickr Alley. I'll have links for the Nitrate Picture Show and for the Blu-ray DVD combo set of Behind the Door in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. In the next episode, we'll be talking about a woman director who was one of the highest paid directors in the world in the 1910s. Dennis Doros of Milestone Films will join me to talk about Lois Weber and his release of two of her films, Shoes and The Dumb Girl of Portici, now playing around the country. There's one other thing I wanted to mention. In my conversation with Rob Byrne, I referenced the Library of Congress preservationist James Cozart. James passed away on March 24th, and Behind the Door is just one of so many films that he helped save for us all. So I want to pay tribute in this episode to one of the heroes of preserving our film heritage. Godspeed, James.